Roger that, Bert, and uh, congratulations. Be advised, however, there are two more, repeat, two more mother humpers. It's the Popcorn Digest with Gareth and Andy. Hello and welcome to Popcorn Digest, the podcast about the films you love and some you don't. I'm your host, Gareth Green, and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time graboid wrangler, Andrew Raphael. I'm looking at the ass end! (laughs) And for this week's episode, we've got worms! That's right, we're reviewing Ron Underwood's Land Jaws. I mean, Tremors. (laughs) But have we unearthed the well-regarded classic, or is this one bad mother humper? Find out after the trailer. Perfection. A scorched outpost in the middle of nowhere. You know how close I am to leaving this place right now? How close? Maybe that's why Val and Earl decided to leave town. Hey, hold up. That's Edgar Deans. They just picked the wrong day to do it. Jeez. You guys better get the hell out of here. There's a killer on the loose. Could be doing it. Is that a snake? I'll give you boys five dollars for this. Twenty. That's how they get you. They're under the ground. Kevin Bacon and Fred Ward are Val and Earl, two definitely not gay cowboys living together in the arse end of America, who find themselves hunted down by a bigoted community of giant prehistoric worms in Brokeback Tremors. Stranded in a small town called Perfection, Val and Earl spend their time outsmarting these monstrous animals and jumping each other's poles. It's truly a film that has something for everyone to enjoy. Okay, so Andy, have you seen Tremors before? Prior to this episode, is this a film that you had any experience with whatsoever? I have seen it, but I cannot remember when I first saw it. I think it may have possibly been at university. But don't quote me on that. I think that the last time I saw the film in full was when we went to that Starburst screening. I bought the Blu-ray not long after that, but I've not actually watched the actual Blu-ray copy until uh, until last night. Did you buy like the singular film Blu-ray or like the 17 film set of directed DVD oh, the- <laughs> Trevor's films? <laughs> yeah, this, the, uh, the single. Yeah, because uh, I know this film has uh, about 20 sequels. <laughs> yeah. It's like the land before time. <laughs> it is, yeah. And the thing is about the Tremors films as well is when I look at the uh, the price of the box set online, it's always like you can buy Tremors 1 for about seven ninety nine, or for eight ninety nine you can buy all <laughs> seven or eight sequels. Oh, man. I-, I do remember, yeah, we went to Starburst Festival and we saw, I'd say, 90% of the film while we were there. Um, and it was a, it was a good experience watching it on some school chairs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's quite a good one to watch with an audience. Yeah, it's quite a good participatory film, I think. I remember that uh, experience as well, watching that because people there, as you mentioned, it was a group of people that were very much into the film as well. So yeah. it was a it was quite a good experience to watch it then. I will say that when it comes to the film Tremors, I can't remember the first time I've seen it. It's just one of those films that's always been there. It came out in 1990, and I probably saw it in about 93 or something like that, whenever it came out on VHS. yeah, I genuinely can't remember the first time I saw it, but it's always been with me, and it's always been one of my favourite monster movies as well. I'm glad we got round to doing it as an episode for the show, but it actually comes at the recommendation of one of our listeners as well on our Facebook page. 
we do actually listen to the recommendations that people do throw occasionally. So if you do have any, do feel free to leave some comments on uh, on our Facebook page, Twitter page, and we'll see if we can get round to reviewing. Okay, so before we actually get into what we think about the film and how well we regard it or that type of thing, or if there's any flaws that we want to discuss today, I think it's time that we actually lay some context. Let's provide some context for the time that this film was released so we know where this film's come from and how it came to be. So I've been doing some Wikipedia reading. It's weirdly enough, I have like a book up here called uh, Seeking Perfection, which is the unofficial making of guide to tremors. And I haven't actually read it. So all of this research actually comes from IMDb and Wikipedia in the 20 minutes spare time that I had before this episode. Only the best quality for Popcorn <laughs> yeah. Digest. No expense spared. And so the idea came in the early 80s to the writers S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, who were making educational videos for the Navy at the time, which is a weird place for this film to begin. And <laughs> while making one of their videos, they climbed up on a giant desert boulder and had the idea that, you know, what if something stops us from getting down from this boulder? And thus, the idea of land sharks was born. <laughs> and for the longest time, that was the title of the treatment. The speculative script was Land Sharks. I guess that ties it very much into the Jaws inspiration that's woven throughout this film. I think it's actually kind of inescapably a Jaws-inspired film. Yeah, yeah. I think the only reason they didn't call it Land Sharks is because uh, Saturday Night Live had started doing a <laughs> sketch featuring a character called Land Shark. So um, <laughs> they, they decided to seek alternative titles from that point onwards. I believe that the next title that they actually moved to was Beneath Perfection, which I've written down that it sounds like an American daytime soap opera. You, know? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you are now watching Beneath Perfection. The soap opera about uh, plastic surgery, <laughs> plastic surgeons. <laughs> Yeah, it's like the working title for Nip Talk. But like the shitty soap opera version. <laughs> yeah. And the eventual director, Ron Underwood, who was friends with Wilson and Maddock, he was working for National Geographic at the time when they approached him with the idea for this Land Shark script. And it was there that it actually began to take the shape of the film that we see now. And because he was working for National Geographic at the time, he was able to apply some of his real world knowledge about animals and how they work and the, you know that kind of like design ideas to the creature to make it feel more real world and i do think that that does shine through in the final film as well that even despite all of the puppetry and that type of thing these creatures do feel very real world and they've not been designed to look pretty or scary They've been designed for function more than anything, I would say. Mm -hmm. And that does shine through with the film. I think that's one of its big pluses. So I do like it when you get people bringing their background in other areas to their filmmaking as well. I know that one of the big things that people do say about filmmaking is really you have to be an expert in another field and bring those ideas to whatever story you're telling. It's not just good enough to be an expert in filmmaking itself or you're just going to make films about filmmaking. Mm. So I would say that the big thing, though, that actually got tremors made was short circuit came out and was a huge success and if, have you actually seen short circuit the short circuit is another childhood keystone movie i would say that and it's uh rather weirder sequel yeah it's funny i've not seen short circuit for quite some time but it's strange how things don't seem to matter when you're a kid 
I remember I watched it about five or six years ago. It was a little bit problematic, (laughs) to say say the least. Just a little bit problematic. Yeah. I mean, it's not even just the the whole Fisher Stevens playing an Indian character. Because, you know, as a kid, I had no idea. I thought Fisher Stevens was Indian when I was a kid. Yeah, it wasn't until I saw him in something else that, oh, oh, okay. Ooh. That's. I think the thing that I saw him in because I, I was never really saw many Fisher Stevens films. Well, actually, don't say that he was in everything. I mean, I saw Mario Brothers, but didn't realize it was yeah. him at the time when I was a kid. Of course, <laughs> I think it, I think it was when I was older. Yeah, and I saw him in an episode of Friends, one of the first from the first series, yeah. and I was like, "Wait a minute, I recognize him," <laughs> but he wasn't that color. No. <laughs> <laughs> That's the bizarre thing about the sequel is that obviously in the first film he is a supporting character, but in the yeah. in the sequel they build the whole bloody film around him. <laughs> so yes, just... I I have a confession to make as well in regard to Short Circuit. I didn't actually see the first film all the way through until earlier this year. Oh really? At the very beginning of lockdown, I watched it all the way through. However, the sequel I used to watch regularly. I was obsessed with it when I was a kid. And it is such a very strange film, especially towards the end when Johnny Five becomes somewhat gangster and ghetto. Yeah. With his uh, spray paint and chains. Yeah. I hope that actually happened in the film and that isn't just some warped, horribly racist memory that I have. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, the first one has got some sort of strangely adult humor in it as well yeah i remember that there's the bathtub scene with ali sheedy that Mm. is uh, kind of strange yeah i mean on the whole i have good memories of that film it's just one of those things where i'm kind of reluctant to watch it now because i don't know whether it'll spoil my uh my nostalgia goggles it's like you say it's a problematic film it's a film that you have to watch with the context of when it was made obviously yeah but even so you you do think to yourself like oh this must have been close to the bone even back then yeah in terms of its uh representation of the indian community but yeah like you say i watched it recently though it's still it's still a fine film otherwise it still still yeah. works <laughs> ali sheedy's lovely in it She's another like lady of the 80s that I used to have a crush on as well growing up. <laughs> Very much likes Ali Long- Sheedy. <laughs> with, with your long list. <laughs> yeah, the list continues. Your, every woman in the film goes <laughs> on my list. <laughs> oh my gosh, that really makes me sound bad. This like goes all <laughs> the way back to our Death Becomes Her episode when I was talking about <laughs> trying to stir through the dress that... Oh, I forgot her name was wearing. Um, Isabel... Uh, it's not Isabella Rossellini, is it? Yeah. It is Isabella Rossellini, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's enough of that. <laughs> that's enough of that. <laughs> You're listening to yeah. Creepcast with Gareth and Andy. <laughs> <laughs> it's, in the episode, we just become more unraveled <laughs> as yeah, it goes yeah. on. It just ends with yeah. us in our undies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's enough of Creepcast. <laughs> So, yeah. so <laughs> <laughs> moving from, how did we get there from Short Circuit? I don't know. <laughs> well, Short Circuit. Yeah, it's Short Circuit. Obvious. Uh, but, but yeah, that film still holds up. I haven't seen the sequel since I was a kid, and I'm worried. I have the same worry that you do, that that film does not hold up at all. Yeah. It's a happy memory. I'm just happy to leave it at the back of my mind. <laughs> yeah. It's something that happened when I was nine or ten years old. But yeah, so moving back to Tremors, after Short Circuit came out, which was uh, written by the same writers, S.S. Wilson and Brent Maddock, they began shopping around the idea for Tremors. It's essentially one of those passion project ideas again. 
they're cashing in their chips and this is the film that they want to make based on a prior success. It's essentially the same story as with our Toys episode, <laughs> but with entirely different results. Yeah. So it's at that point that actually a Gail and Heard comes on board as a producer. And it does actually fit the kind of Gail and Heard model of filmmaking. If you look at her filmography as well, she's very much into action films and uh, monster movies. And especially those with a certain type of banterish kind of character as well. Yeah, yeah. And then Universal uh, brought on board as well as the eventual distributors of the film. So yeah, that's that's really brings us right up until the making of the film. It's also worth note that amalgamated dynamics were brought on to design the creature and create a full-scale creature effects. And this was actually the second film as a production company, the first film being Teen Witch in 89, the year prior. <laughs> what the fuck they did on Teen Witch? I have no idea. I imagine that was a small-scale project because uh, watching the, the Tremors documentary earlier, they did mention that when they were starting to have, have meetings about doing the film... The uh, producers were saying, oh, yeah, wh when can we visit your shop? But, and they were like, we haven't got one at the time. Like, will you give us a yeah. check and we'll, we'll buy the shop. So yeah. I imagine their, their work on Teen Witch would have been very minimal on set stuff. Maybe like in the location or soundstage that they'd have had, they would have had a workshop yeah. on, you know, where they were filming. But uh, yeah, th this is probably the first proper ADI full scale project. Yeah. It's worth noting as well because there's a couple of like little connections between uh, this film and the abyss tom woodruff jr and alec gillis their final project for stan winston was leviathan oh right yes yeah, so that ties into a previous episode as well they uh finished with stan winston after leviathan and then set up their own company and went on from there which when you look at the timeline makes sense it is worth noting that even though this is their first proper film tom woodruff jr and alec gillis they do have an extensive background in um, creature effects especially as you mentioned with stan winston studios people often refer to alien 3 as being the first film on the alien series but actually it's aliens mm. from back when they were working with stan winston studios on that film yeah so yeah it does it does have a few connections to not just the, the abyss as well but to that kind of james cameron era of filmmaking as well yeah i do wonder if that gail and heard connection provided them that opportunity to do something special with tremors yeah i think she provided many of the connections regarding like the especially the visual effects side because um the miniatures guys the uh, scotex were also from yeah. aliens and the abyss so in terms of her picking up this film it was a um a perfect marriage because she had all the the expertise and all the connections to make something like this work and make it happen i mean we often talk about james cameron's background going all the way back to roger Comer, but so did gail and hers yeah. and that shows with the films that she makes as well she absolutely knows the tricks of the trade and has all of the connections and knows who to use to achieve what the directors do require I will say as well about Tremors, it's not a massive future landscape or anything like that in terms of what they're trying to present with this film. So like the miniature work, for example, it's a lot more pared back and more realistic. It's yeah, trying to yeah. just blend into a real world. And actually, for the most part, I think it's very effective throughout the entire film. There's only a couple of shots where I, I find it a little bit iffy. Maybe the lighting's just slightly off that gives mm -hmm. it away or that type of thing. But for the most part, 90% of the work in this film is 
solid stuff. Very, very well done. I would hold this up as a great example of an analog movie. Yeah. Where there's no digital involved at all. Mm -hmm. Not even in the compositing side, I don't think. Yeah, I think this is a good film for modern filmmakers to watch to see what you can actually do without having to resort to doing any kind of CG because um, this film, you know, bar a couple of little bits and bobs, holds up so well, mm. you know, after 30 years. That makes me feel old yeah. to refer to this as a 30-year-old film. Yeah. I mean, it's over because it was shot in 1989 as well because it came out in the January yeah. of... It was supposed to come out in the November of 1989 and they, because of reasons we'll talk about later, they moved it to January. Yes. Fuck you, it's January. <laughs> I actually yeah. have written down in my stats and facts that this is like one of the best fuck you, it's January movies. Yeah. But I would actually say as well, I don't think this feels like a particularly 80s movie. I've always equated this to that 90s era of filmmaking where things start to move on, like with um, Paul Verhoeven's Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. Even though it is an analog movie where, you know, it's not Jurassic Park, it's it's not kind of pushing that early dawn of CGI. It's doing everything the old way. Yeah. It still very much feels like a contemporary film, and I think that's in the writing, actually. Yeah, yeah. So even though it is an 80s movie, I still think it's beyond its years somewhat, and that's why it's kind of lasted the test of time and why people still keep on going back to it for sequel after sequel after sequel. I think also down to its desert setting and... The kind of clothes that everyone wears, I think it yeah. gives it a kind of timeless quality because if you go to those kind of areas now, people dress exactly the same. The buildings look exactly the same. I hadn't even thought about that, but yeah, it does have that timeless quality. You're right. I've driven around places like that. I mean, even as, you know, last year when I went on my honeymoon driving through California, yeah, there's towns that look like that and places that look like that. So uh, yeah, it just has that kind of air of authenticity and timelessness that I think benefits the film greatly. I would love to see a Cars slash Tremors mix-up where instead of perfection, it's Radiator Springs. Oh, man. <laughs> and would the Graboids be Cars themselves? Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> would they be Cars? Oh, man, that is an episode we have to do. Yeah. We have to do Cars at some point. Which one would we do? Ooh, all of them. <laughs> <laughs> oh, don't make me. Weirdly enough, I watched the third one again. Another lockdown film. I've not actually seen the third one. I've got as far as the second one. But the third one, it's not good. It's not, it's not it's not great. I would say it's the most effective out of the three, though. It's the best one of the lot. It's like they finally did it right, but it's still not up to the standard of what you would expect yeah. from Pixar. Because yeah. that world doesn't work. But that is an episode for it another is. day. I've got so many stories to share about that one as well. So I, Weirdly enough, I do think Cars 2 should be the episode, though. It's oh, just, definitely, yeah. That is the, <laughs> the oddity of the lot. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so you have mentioned as well, one of my final facts about this film was going to be that... I was going to save this for the stats and facts, but I think since you've already mentioned it, we might as well just bed it in now. But the film was pushed back from its original release date in 1989 to do more extensive editing and redubbing work as the film had first received an MPAA rating of R. Hmm. And at the very last minute, the studio decided, actually, we want to push this as a more family-friendly horror film and so the decision was made to redub and re-edit a lot of the film to take out 20 plus uses of the word fuck which is strange watching the film now because there are two instances where it's clear as day that mm. they are saying fuck but it's yeah. been taken out and one of them is the now infamous line mother humpers 
which is brilliant. Yeah. And the other one is, can you fly, you sucker? Yeah. Which is very obvious as well. Yeah. And those are the noted examples on Wikipedia. But other than that, I can't find the places in which they were included previously. I do feel like they've edited it well to mask that. Yeah, the the the, the Mother Humper one is a classic. <laughs> I think it's a classic because you know what it's supposed to be, but in terms of lip syncing, they just about get away with it. You can see the like the audio quality change just for that line as well. Like yeah. in terms of the tone, just but but as you say, the lip syncing just matches yeah. up. It goes like, yeah, Mother Humper. <laughs> I wonder if there was like a Blade Runner type situation where Kevin Bacon just did not want to do the dub. Oh, I don't know. What do you think of the film in terms of like that decision that was made to really take it back from being an R-rated film to being a PG-13 film? Because they did achieve the PG-13 rating. It didn't really help the film whatsoever for reasons we'll go into later in terms of the box office. I mean, it's funny for us because being... uh british the film is a 15 over here yeah, anyway. yeah it's still the same rating i mean i think that's just down to the uh the differences in the rating boards yeah uh, over here and in america because in america they're much more interested in i would say the less important stuff which is all the um anything involving sex or words that involve sexual connotations violence they don't give a shit about for some yeah. fucked up reason in britain it's the opposite way around they really don't care that much about things involving sex or suggesting sex, they're more interested in the violence and the gore over here. Look at what Bond got away with for as many years as it has. I mean, there are full-on nipple and bush shots that you can (laughs) (laughs) spy throughout those films. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, it's gone back to Creepcast again. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Welcome back to Creepcast, McGarrett Fernandes. This week we're talking about the two frames worth of bush you can see in a Bond film. (laughs) Oh, God, this has turned into Mr. Skin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay. But um, it's strange, though, considering we have the reputation for being prudes, but, yeah, we're not that asked about um, sex in our films. Yeah. Whereas the Americans are incredibly asked about sex in their films. But uh... yeah, it's, it's a very strange way to be in terms of that. Like, the gratuitous violence is okay. Yeah. But the suggestion <laughs> of a nipple is not. or the, Even the suggestion of sex is not. You've got to do uh, 10 Hail Marys now. <laughs> But um, when it comes to actual Tremors, I think that was probably the right decision. Yeah. I think this really works well. And and this is one of the points I really want to make about this film, especially the way that I grew up with it. This was a gateway horror movie for me. And I think that it's a really good, really solid gateway horror movie for kids as well. Like, it's... it's ju- I mean, over here, it's still 15 anyway. Yeah, yeah. But it was a 15... 15- then again, my mum and dad used to let me watch whatever the whatever was on, so that explains a lot. But it's one of those films where it is a family-friendly-ish adventure film. It's got just enough gore in it as well to push those boundaries, and it's just scary enough, but it's also quite it's like it's an adventure as well. Not everyone dies or horribly dies. You know, it's, there's quite a large group of people that survive at the end as yeah, well. Yeah. It's more so about that community spirit as they overcome the monsters against all odds. And I think that suits a more family market than it does just a strictly adult one. 
and I think it's good in the fact that because it's kind of been retrofitted into that mold, it's not entirely toothless. Like there have been some other horror films that have been made for a PG thirteen market that are yeah. very toothless. I'm trying to think of that one that Joe Dante made about fifteen oh, years. Or was it ten fifteen years hole. ago? The hole in three D. The hole in three D. Yeah. Oh my! It sounds like a pawn, doesn't it? I know. Well, get to see the hole. <laughs> thought of that title. Jesus Christ. <laughs> Yeah, the hole in 3D. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! Back to Creepcast. Yeah, it's a double bow with gape in 3D. <laughs> what is this heat, mate? I think it's this heat. It's doing things to us today. Oh, I think it's the, it's the Kevin Bacon factor. I think. <laughs> Sponsored by EE. Uh, I have things to say. I have opinions about those (laughs) EE adverts, and none of our American listeners will get it, but there's a series of EE adverts. Kevin Bacon stars in them. He's like being the figurehead for EE. He's still doing it, isn't he? He still is, yeah. He's even been doing it in lockdown from his (laughs) Californian house. And in one of the adverts, like sometimes he revisits his, his old characters, and one of the adverts features Hollow Man. And it's like, of all the Kevin Bacon characters you could use, you chose the invisible rapist. It's like, that's not somebody that you want to advertise your mobile phone company. Or maybe it is. Maybe it's a, their ear yeah. rape through the phone. That's the next Nightmare on Elm Street movie. It, it is. Talking about Nightmare on Elm Street, Robert England actually said that Kevin Bacon should be the next Freddy if he had a choice. Oh, really? That was who he would pick as the next Freddy. I think it could be a good choice. I quite liked... Uh, what was his name of the actor that played the last oh, is it, one? He was, is it Jackie Earl Haley? That's one. Jackie Earl Haley. I can't say it. Yeah. Jackie Earl Haley. I actually quite like him as a choice as well, mm. even though that film was terrible and he, for some reason he looked like a monkey. <laughs> he looked like a burnt monkey. I don't know why. <laughs> anyway, Tremors. I forgot where I was even up to. I do think that Val and Earl in this film have a weird kind of setup. They uh, seem to share the same trailer. Yeah. I, I described them as cowboys. That was I just want to say straight from the off, that was just to set up the uh, Brokeback Mountain joke. Yeah. I understand that they're not cowboys, they're just handy men. Handy Andes. Very handy indeed. <laughs> <laughs> if they were German, they'd be called Hans Everywhere. Oh, <laughs> that's actually a joke from another podcast. Oh dear. I'd say one thing I actually really like about this film as well is the title of the actual film is really very well done. The title treatment with the uh, layers of what seems like sediment splitting up. It's very Sal Bass, I thought it was. Yeah, it is quite Sal Bass, yeah. And I do have something to say about this film as well, about the quality of it. Now, this goes back to something that Edgar Wright said, and I mentioned it to you at the festival that we saw at, that I remembered that Edgar Wright somewhere in an interview had described it as being a perfect film. Um, When asked to list his ideas of perfect films, Tremors was in amongst them, and he does speak very highly of it. I was doing some research before this, and I found a few tweets in which he does speak very highly of the film Tremors. And I think its inspiration does shine through, especially unlike Shaun of the Dead, in terms of the character interactions as well, and the structure of the film in terms of the setups and payoffs and that type of thing. I think I agree with him that this is... It's one of my favourite monster movies. It's not like my favourite film of all time. Mm. But I do think it's a perfect film where everything that they set out to achieve, yeah. they met or exceeded. Yeah, And I can't falter in terms of... There are obviously the odd shots here and there, which I can say that the effects, like, the lighting was slightly off there. But in terms of on a whole, everything that they set out to achieve, the way that the characters are defined, 
the way that the world is built as well and the arcs for all of the characters and the location even throughout the entire film i think it is probably a perfect film in that way mm. i cannot fault it i mean when people ask for the idea of a perfect film they often say films like the godfather metropolis or you know like passion of joan of arc and i say fuck your heart house cinema history or yeah. radical 70s new hollywood tremors is the answer i think the reason is because it knows exactly what it wants to achieve it knows yeah. what it is because it is a b-movie yes unashamedly it knows it's a b-movie but it has the money to execute that B-moviness to the best it can be, but also on a scripting level, the it's a B-movie that's been written by A-movie people because the dialogue and the characterizations are, are more akin to A-movies, but they're kind of doing the B-movie characters. It's kind of strange yeah. to think about. And that's a lot better than quite a lot of A-movies where they aim for the A-movie thing, but they miss it. Whereas this is aiming squarely for a B-movie feel and hits the nail on the head. Yeah, it does. It's very much like the anti-alien in that way. Whereas obviously Alien is a, a B-movie concept that's brought up to A-movie level and taken yeah. very seriously and has a lot of very serious A-movie themes. Whereas this is the complete opposite of that Um bar the execution yeah they've got no qualms about what the film is about mm. and that it's essentially a monster movie and instead what i like about these type of films and even why the sequels don't quite succeed in the same well the sequels really don't succeed in the same way for reasons <laughs> i'll get into later but even films of the same type i think often blow their load by doing too much with the monsters whereas as well with this film because of, as you mentioned, it's an analog movie, they've had to pick their moments as to when and how they can show the creatures. And you can tell, again, like it's got that A-movie crew behind it because they've had to come up with all of these clever ways in which they can show the creatures as well uh, and provide them with a presence without them actually being there. And so we've got things like even just a shot of a piece of scrap toppling over is enough to tell you that, that the creature is there. Like you say, it's that A-movie mentality that they've brought to this film. They've got money behind them, but they haven't got all the money in the world or all of the CGI in the world to do it in a whole manner of crazy ways. They've still got to think in smart terms of how they can achieve this vision. And that really comes across, I think, in the film as well. And I think it completely to its benefit because I think it ramps up the horror a lot more. I mean, to say that this is a... I wouldn't say it's a Jaws ripoff. No. I would say it's more of a tribute to yes. Jaws because it, it hits a couple of the same beats, but I think it does it in such a, a different way as to sort of get away with it not being sort of a complete ripoff and more of a tribute. But I think, yeah, I think the fact that you don't see an awful lot and the fact that it is all analog is to its benefit because even though the film has a kind of irreverent tone, the actual concept of it is actually still quite terrifying. I mean, even last night, I was worried that before I went to bed that the one of the graboids was just going to break through my bedroom floor. Yeah. Just that kind of fear of the unknown and not being able to see anything, that's the, kind of almost the point of it. And they never undercut the creature or ridicule it. it no. The comedy or the banter is never at the expense of the terror of the creatures themselves. No. Because I used to find these creatures really scary as well mm. growing up but also the fact that they're executed entirely with in-camera effects mm. not even any like stop motion or anything like that everything's kind of done live gives it a um a realness that you just don't get with monster films these days yeah that, i think that's why another reason why the film holds up so well is that you know there are there's a few 
dodgy effects, but I think there's enough there to win you over that you kind of either don't notice them unless you're on a on a rewatch or you kind of just forgive them because they're everything else that they're doing mm. is so well. And some of the things I'm just like, Jesus, how did they achieve that yeah. with the tech? I mean, I was looking at the effects reel before. I genuinely think that if anyone wants to make films like this now, they need to start looking at those test reels. It's like when we were talking about The Thing yeah, and seeing that Thing test reel and then even looking at the, the test reel of the effects where of the tentacles mm-hmm. and what they look like underneath. It's literally, it's so fucking simple. It's just like, it's articulated pieces, like little pieces, and then it's just cables. And obviously, yeah. it's one of those things where you have a cable control and you pull the cable and obviously it lets it bend one way. And then you of have course, enough yeah. of the cables and it kind of, it actually just flails around like a proper, like in an actual real snake. Yeah. And it's like, it's that kind of stuff that if you look at it on screen, it looks because it's real, but it's moving so fluidly. It's like, that is better than any CGI you can yeah. possibly get. Yeah, I think there's a lot that younger filmmakers, I feel really old now, but like, like younger filmmakers or even just like, to be honest, any filmmaker where, where they're considering the effects routes now, because I, I genuinely yeah. don't think that there's any kind of real practicality route that can be argued in terms of going with CGI these days. It seems to be all going into indie filmmaking at the moment in yeah. terms of the uh, practical side of filmmaking, but it all seems to be done on an independent level. I, I I don't even think it's the filmmakers themselves that are being hampered. When, when we look at the thing as well, that decision to make it all CGI pretty much at the last minute and then they push back that film, that came from the studio. And I think that's where it comes from more often than not. But I also think that the on the other side of things, on a more larger budget level, from certain types of filmmakers, certain lazier filmmakers, that they want to decide on the day how they're going to shoot something and what they're going to do with it. They want to have the fluidity kind of thing that CGI will do it in post provides. It's a much lazier way of doing things because it requires a lot less effort, a lot less thought, and you're not tied down to your ideas. Whereas yeah. I think with... ADI and, and doing it in a practical way. And one of the things that ADI did say about the thing was it's not about what it looks like from this angle. It might look fake. It's about what it looks like from this angle. Yeah. You know, it's it's all about making sure that you make those decisions long before you're on the set. I think that's also where you can save a lot of money as well. I mean, um, this is completely unrelated, but I was watching Torn Curtain by Alfred Hitchcock the other day. Yeah. And because Hitchcock was one of the uh, very early proponents of planning his films to the nth degree, i.e. storyboarding. Yeah. Uh, he kind of storyboarded before it was a, a thing, I think. Mm. He was able to utilise things in ways which were not wasteful. So, for example, there is a, I think it's a, uh, it's a museum set or, or like an atrium set, mm. but he planned the shot that it would follow, it would be shot from above and he would follow the character, uh, Paul Newman's character in that film, as he walked and would follow him and basically it's just you follow him and you see the floor and a few columns and people scrubbing the floor because it's early in the morning Mm. and that's all the set but because he'd planned the shot that went over him all they had to build was the floor and some columns there's no ceilings walls or anything in that set it's just the opening it's just the door opening the floor columns nothing else and it's obviously that is just what he wants you to see. Therefore, that's all they built. That's all there needs to be. Yeah. And the same thing goes with with this film because they seem to do a lot of things that they just 
a lot of mainstream films would just not do today. So obviously the, the film was storyboarded like meticulously. They knew what pieces they would need in terms of the effects mm. and the miniatures. But also they had the editor with them on set pretty much the whole time. More films need to be made in that way as well because when it comes to making these type of films as well, we need to take a more animation type approach where, yeah, we, yeah. where filmmakers need to be setting their ideas of where the cut's going to be and how. The film needs to be made before you start filmmaking, essentially, before you start shooting. Yeah. So to hear that, it makes sense to me that this is one of those films. I would say this film is incredibly well edited. Yeah. As regards to its pacing and also to how it cuts all the effects elements with the live action. I mean, there's tons of things that they did, like the um, when one of the Graboids attacks Bert and Heather's bunker. Oh, yes. Yeah. It constantly switches between the, the live action set and the miniature set, and they achieved that in a really low-tech way, but it's really effective, by just using whip pans and cutting halfway through the whip pan. But for the longest time, I had no idea that that was not a full-scale mm. effect from ADI. Yeah. Because I knew for very many years that ADI had worked on the film making full-scale Graboid effects, I had always assumed that that was one of their full-scale Graboid effects. And there's only one shot that really gives it away. But it was only until, I think it was, weirdly enough, Red Letter Media did a video about Tremors. Yeah. And one of the things that stuck out to me was they spoke about that and how they did that. And that was the point in which I suddenly realised, holy shit, that's not a full-sized replica. That's not. That's a miniature. That's mm. amazing. And as you say, it's achieved in such a very basic analogue way of just masking the cut in a whip pan. And it works just amazingly. Because, yeah, the, the, it's funny that you said that the weakest part of that sequence is the only shot where it's composited. Yeah, that's it. Where you have the, was it Bert in front of the Graboid miniature and you can yeah. see the uh, the optical uh, masking lines. But the thing is as well, I I understand why it's there because they wanted a shot in which you had a person and the Graboid in together mm. to frame it in one single image. But I don't think it's actually needed because of the effectiveness of the whip pants. Yeah, yeah. I think you can actually take that shot completely out of the scene and it would be more effective without it. Definitely, because they, they recreated the um, the miniature of the bunker so well that you would just not... Yeah. It just in your mind, and your brain would not put two and two together. Exactly, yeah. I think that's the great thing about using real things anyway because you don't have to fool the brain mm. into buying something like you do with with a lot of CGI, especially when it comes to things that aren't real. We'd say, I mean, when you, when you start thinking about like all great CGI effects, they're usually done by David Fincher or somebody like that where he yeah. utilizes them in a more real world setting. Mm -hmm. Whereas, yeah, a lot of, I say, creature-based CGI is still has that kind of uncanny valiness about it. Even the very best stuff. I find there's almost a rubber bandy element to yeah. a lot of creatures that are created now. And a strange shininess still. That's it, yeah, yeah. In their quest to make them more real, they feel less real. It's still an approximation, whereas yeah. even like, you know, they use glove puppets in this, and it's like <laughs> the lowest tech, goofiest thing you can possibly think fucking works. Because at the end of the day, it's a glove puppet, but it's a human arm that's moving, real muscles. Yeah. I think that's the thing, that if you think, like, oh, glove puppet is really goofy and basic, but when you actually think about, no, it's the glove puppet, but what's underneath the glove puppet, your arm yeah. and hand, which is actually very complicated. So it's not, it's actually probably more complex than even a puppet 
like you know an actual yeah, like, articulated puppet would be in terms of the moving parts and yeah and, and the little nuances that you can get from it, it so exactly right the tiny movements that your brain subconsciously picks up on that yeah. automatically makes something feel more real in your mind yeah so you spend millions of dollars on the same effect done in cgi and use a glove puppet and you'd probably still think that the glove puppet was more realistic yeah you know as long as it's shot and lit well and edited well it's a matter of knowing how to shoot and knowing your limitations and restrictions in shooting the film in certain ways and then using that to your advantage to be honest it's not just the making of this film but also the story is done in a very similar way in that it's like a game of chess and it's about people plotting out their next move against the creatures and it's like that's how the film's been made as well it's like it's been very planned out they've thought their way through it they've had a series of obstacles and they've come up with expert solutions really you know arrived at salvation at the end i actually like that about this film as well in terms of its structure that it's just essentially about a group of people trying to outsmart some prehistoric <laughs> giant worms but the the rules of the world are defined and well established as well there are certain rules that cannot be broken or ends up in death or danger and at the same time as well there are certain things that the human characters in the film can do that the worms in the film can't and so there's this play off against each other this game of chess that plays out throughout the film that is very well broken down right up until its end and everything that is established early on is paid off late on as well. And I can see the inspiration that Edgar Wright's taken from this film. Yeah, yeah. Not just in like, as we mentioned, whip pans and that type of thing. But in terms of these are the types of films that are made to be rewatched to pick up on the, the nuances. Like how things are established earlier on to how they pay off later. Even this time watching it, I picked up on a single line that I hadn't picked up on before. I've set up and pay off. I had never picked up on on all of the prior times I've watched it, but the fact that Earl says to Val, for all you know, these things can fly as a <laughs> very offhanded line. And then it yeah, ends yeah. with him saying the line, can you fly, you sucker? Yeah. And I'd not made that connection before today. And it's it's clear as day now that I can see it. Yeah. And, and also the fact that they start, that the opening shot of the movie is also the... Um you know the last thing with the graboid in the movie of and course yeah they they foreshadow that whole idea in that first scene but yeah the, actually when you think about it as an Edgar Wright film there's so many things in it I mean the one that springs to mind is the one before the um the doctor and his wife get killed yeah the first line that he says in that scene is I'm dead and like that is yeah. a classic <laughs> it's something brilliant. that Edgar Wright would use like later on in terms yeah. of like his sort of, sort of comedic foreshadowing it is and one of the things that I like about this film as well are, are scenes like that that are still very smartly done, that still are darkly comic, but that is a terrifying scene in this mm. film as well. I, I like that the horror in this film is horrific. It's not gratuitous, as we've mentioned. It's not incredibly gory. There's a couple of splashes of gore here and there, but I like that it doesn't treat these creatures as, as a joke. And Edgar Wright has also taken that to his films. I know that with Shaun of the Dead, there are a couple of moments where the absurdity of the zombies are played out, but they are still treated like a threat throughout mm. the film. And yeah. if they get if you get close enough, they're going to tear you to shreds in a very horrific manner. I feel like he's taken that away as well. And also in a way that, with I would say the exception of Hot Fuzz, which does on occasion veer close to parody but in in a good way in a very mm. good way that that really works for that film but his films as well 
even though the play itself, Shaun of the Dead, is a play on Dawn of the Dead, it's still its own entity that isn't a parody of a certain type mm. of film. It's just, it's a horror film with funny moments. Or sometimes it's a, a comedy with a horror elements, and then sometimes it's a horror movie with comedy elements. Yeah, and yeah. this very much, I, f- I feel like tonally, there's a there's a relationship there between those two films. Yeah, because um, Tremors is a very irreverent film. It definitely has its tongue placed firmly in its cheek as to regards its characters. Yeah, but it pits those characters against something that that is played quite straight. Yeah, and it's how those characters bounce off that thing that's quite terrifying and quite and you know played very straight. Mm-hmm. And it, it's the contrast between the two i think that makes it work but yeah it is an incredibly simple premise and it is because of its characters and i mean obviously the execution of the of the effects but also because of its characters and the casting because that's the, one of the other things that separates it from being a an actual b movie i mean it's a b yeah. movie plot but it's still an a movie because of how the casting is and also just the um like i wouldn't call them three-dimensional characters because again it's still a b-movie but they are injected with such personality which you wouldn't normally get in a b-movie you know with with monster movies like this in b-movies they're very much yeah written as stock characters and are just cannon fodder mm-hmm. whereas this all the personality is a very distinct yes i mean it's even like the um the oh, i forgot the name of the little girl the one from jurassic park ariana richards yeah was it mindy mindy that was yeah. it yes so it's uh, even mindy a, a character who in another film would just be a screaming little girl is like she's given a quirk which mm. is the pogo stick it's <laughs> yeah. part of her character and i i like that it like you say it's not that these characters are incredibly fleshed out like you you know, you can see them doing their taxes or anything like that, but <laughs> they do feel part of this world and they are well established and defined. And even the background characters that aren't really, because there are a couple of characters that aren't really given much to do, like Mindy and her mum, even those are just given the little quirks that just make them stand out from the rest. And even if it's just one characteristic, one little character trait like a pogo stick yeah yeah that's enough to do the job to be honest i really want to know about you know walter chang's inner struggle and his <laughs> his uh, battle to keep the store open uh, against all the odds i want to see that story i want to see how walter chang ended up there to be honest yeah <laughs> like i want to know that story and, and the odds that he faced in terms of se- like he wanted to set up this little yeah. shop in perfection an entire film about that, this rags to riches <laughs> to perfection story, and it ends with him just randomly being eaten by a giant worm. <laughs> that, I mean, that's an interesting one in itself, the fact that they changed the character's name, because in, uh, the original, I can't remember the name that they had for it now, but it was a Vietnamese name, Yeah, and they've written it for a Vietnamese actor in mind, but when they cast is it Victor Wong? He's another one of those actors that was in everything I saw when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah, when they cast him and he was actually Chinese, they decided to change it to a Chinese name, which is uh, quite thoughtful of them. It is. Uh, you know, if it had been a Michael Bay film or something like that, he would have kept the bloody original names. Like, yeah, they all look the same to me. I don't think he would have noticed. No. Like, if it was a Michael <laughs> Bay film, he wouldn't have noticed. He's too busy fucking that frame. <laughs> yeah. You know, when when, you, when people talk about Michael Bay fucking frames, I'm just imagining him having sex with a camera, to be honest. Like, with, with the gate. <laughs> Oh, it's just got cum all over the viewfinder. Oh my gosh, imagine trying to restore that. You're watching Creepcast. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, it makes a change from what we're normally yeah, talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> Who knew that Tremors was going to be the film that did this to us? Well, it's a film about giant worms. This is true, yeah. It's loaded with sexual uh, imagery, to be fair. I mean, there's, there's that whole thing that ADI were talking about though, with their original design for the Graboid, which had this kind of like the hard outer casing and then this thing that came out that was more sort of <laughs> rubbery. They called it the turtleneck rather innocently. And then when they started doing the rounds in the offices, everyone started <laughs> sniggering. It's like, it just looks like a giant foreskin or like a, a dog lipstick or something like that. I imagine it's very close to what Peter Jackson ended up using for King Kong. That is a, a very iffy, dicky creature in it. Oh, yeah. That's another episode entirely, I think. That is. Keep coming up with episodes. It would be one of the few episodes as well where the episode itself will be shorter than the film. Because <laughs> it's normally the other way around with Popcorn Digest. Oh, yeah. i tell you one thing. Uh, I think this is a perfectly cast film as well. Like, every single actor perfectly suits the role. Kevin Bacon as well. Fre- uh, I almost called him Fred Durst. Fred Ward. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god, I would love to see the Fred Durst version of this film. <laughs> <laughs> he is an acclaimed director now. You might have seen <laughs> The Fanatic. It's uh, it's up there. In the echelon of shit films. <laughs> it was actually produced by one of the owners of Everton Football Club. Not only do we finish mid-table, but we also make shit films. Oh, man. Anyway, <laughs> so I do think it's a perfectly cast film and... Fred Ward and Kevin Bacon have great chemistry together. It's clear Kevin Bacon mentioned that, weirdly enough, that this was a low point in his career. After he admit, he said he had a lot of fun making the film, but afterwards he was like, is this where I really want my career to be, where I'm making monster movies about giant worms in the desert? <laughs> but, I mean, this is at a time as well when he was starting to get noticed for, well, not noticed, but he was starting to move more into films like Murder in the First, uh, Nixon, and is Just Round the Corner. And, you know, he's starting to do more serious and sleepers as well as a few years down the line. He's starting to get a bit more Oscar seriousness to yeah, his yeah. Uh, to his performances. Is from... he Nixon? Oh, JFK. JFK, sorry, not... I was thinking. JFK, not Nixon, sorry. JFK. I watched them both back to back. Not not too long. They're all merged in they my are, brain yeah. now. Yeah, so he's in JFK. But yeah, he's starting to do that type of film now at this point in his career. So I can see why he looked at this at that time as being the black sheep of his filmography. Yeah. But... In a year since, weirdly enough, he's actually come around to it as being the film series that he wants to revisit the most. Mm. And it actually culminated in a failed TV pilot, unfortunately, um, that he spent years trying to get made into a series. And it just, um, for one reason or another, I think it was actually due to budget concerns, it never quite took off. Yeah, It is clear that they're having a lot of fun making this film as well. But one thing that I will say is, if you watch this film and think... Oh, that lady that plays Rhonda's pretty good in this. You know, she's got great chemistry with them. I wonder what, I wonder what she's done. What's her name? Finn Carter? I'll just Google search that. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. What happened? Yeah. What happened to you? Oh, man. That's what's going to happen. It is a warning. Just do not Google Finn Carter. There are some mysteries that are left best left unsolved. Yeah. Apparently, she's got a very long jail stint ahead of her. I, I read about that before. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> I genuinely did, though. I thought, oh, you know, she's really good in this film. I, well, why haven't we seen her in anything since? And it seems to be one of those stories that's ended with a very unfortunate and unexpected conclusion as well. Yeah. But anyway, she's good in this. Th- yeah, I mean, there's not enough detail for us to go into that. But yeah, it's uh, no. it seems like you can fill in the blanks yourself. I can. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a choose-your-own-adventure. Anywho. <laughs> yeah. 
for all that we've talked about, for the the way that they've made the film, the way that they've shot the film, and the effects that have been used, and the way in which they show the creatures, um, this film would be nothing without its writing as well. And I think I can't speak enough really about the quality of the writing for this film. Uh, everything's so well defined. The characters are, have got such great banter with each other as well, and. As mentioned, I really like the relationship between uh, Val and Earl. I think they are great together, even as like as characters as well. They've got a great banter. They've got this rivalry with each other about who gets to do yeah do what. It always comes to uh, rock paper scissors. I yeah. like these little quirks that they have, it and it really pays off those those and the actors that they use for those roles really bring it together. I think they also they give them almost like a, a waiting for Godot situation as well because they're always trying to get <laughs> yeah. to bixby and is they that why they're called there. val and earl maybe vladimir and estrogen <laughs> it might be maybe that might be one of the best waiting for good old references that we've picked up yeah i think as well like it has that kind of almost like a thematic thing where it's like is bixby just going to be another town that's like this I mean, I was going to look yeah. up whether Bixby actually existed, but because obviously perfection doesn't. But yeah. I imagine it'd be just another small town, maybe slightly bigger than the last one. <laughs> that would actually be really quite funny to find out. I, yeah. I might, I'm going to Google it after this episode just to see, because that would be like a very well thought out punchline. Yeah. But it is. It just seems like they are just handymen that move. I'd say move from town to town, probably, but... It seems like they're uh, they've been rooted in perfection for quite some time. I mean, how many fucking jobs are, like are needed to be done in <laughs> in that small like? It's not even a town. It's basically <laughs> yeah. a shop with two houses. When I was watching it as well, I was like, "What industry is there here? What is keeping anybody in perfection? <laughs> what do they have?" I mean, if you have a shop in perfection, the owner shop, surely all you need to do is keep enough food to keep one single household going is that like the irony of that it's called perfection but it's like mm. you know the, the way that the the whole town's built it, it's it's a cul-de-sac there's only one way in and one way out yeah and so yeah the the shop is only sustaining the uh, 14 residents that, that <laughs> live there and yeah so just a couple of things just a couple more things i want to discuss before we move on to the stats and facts i will say i love the slow reveal of the creature itself like how we actually reveal the creature at first, we're led to believe that these much smaller snakes, and there are many of them. And when the actual big reveal comes, it's actually, oh, actually, it's just one big one with these snake-like creatures that come out of its mouth. And I really like that reveal. And I imagine it would have been very well done if you had seen the film for the first time when it came out in 1990 and didn't know what the tremors were. But much like and I would say The Wicker Man, it's a film in which its big reveal is given away on the box art. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think Tremors does the same. I know that the creature on the front of the box is just one of a, a very enlarged version of the uh, graboid tentacle thing. Yeah. But because of the scale of it, and it's also given it teeth, weirdly enough, as well. Mm. Because of the scale of it, it already alludes to something much bigger being beneath them. Yeah, I think that's more of a play on the, on the Jaws poster there, isn't it? It is. They pretty much do that with every poster as well for the series, <laughs> right yeah. up until about the fourth or fifth film. Yeah, I think that the newer ones seem to look more like uh, sci-fi posters or asylum posters, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I will say as well that, as we say about this film, that it is, it's a B-movie done to be a B-movie by A-movie filmmakers. Mm. The sequels are just B-movie film made by B-movie filmmakers to... C movie, D movie, E movie, <laughs> Z movie. Yeah. They're at a point now in which 
they might as well be sci-fi made for TV movies. But th- there is a new one coming out at the end of this year. <laughs> Way! Tremors 8 or 7, I can't remember which one is which. I will probably see it, I've got them all. I definitely will probably get around to it, but have you seen any of the sequels or know how they the direction that they go? Only a little bit. I know that it, they mainly revolve around Bert and the one of them's a prequel. Yes. Set in the Western times. That's one of the few that I haven't seen. I think I've seen them all apart from the uh, the prequel and that's supposed to be one of the better of like the second film is the best one of the lot when we look at the sequels and the rest are a very mixed bag but of them the prequel is supposed to be the one that's from what I've read is the best of that that bunch of films but I've not actually gotten around to watching mm. it but it's just because it does something different with the characters and completely against type for that type of film it's supposed to be much better mm. But they fall down the trap with each film that it's about which is the gimmick that they can hang this film on because they start revealing more and more and more about the life cycle of this creature and each film introduces a new element to the life cycle and that new element is a different type of graboid creature. One of them can fly, one of them is a heat seeker rather than a... Uh, uh, I mean, it's already going down, <laughs> down that road. <laughs> I think the, the ones that can fly are called ass blasters. Yeah. I've read about that before. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it gets further and further away as it goes from what made the first film work. Yeah. The second film only just gets away with it. But from there onwards, it just gets worse and worse and worse for me. I mean, that's one of the things I, I liked about the original film is that, uh, and they say, they talk about this on the documentary about, do we need to explain where these things came from? And they were talking about, right, if we're, if we're doing this in a, in a realistic way, mm-hmm. say, for example, we were just to come across these things in real life, there's absolutely no way you would work out, one, where they came from or what their life cycle is no, in yeah. the time that is spent with them. There's just no way that's going to happen. So we're not going to explain it because it just doesn't fit how it would actually happen in the in the story. There's no, like, jumps in time or anything like that. Yeah, And I think far too many films these days do go a bit too... Um, deep into like origins of things where mm. like that just would not happen like you say a lot i think that gives it a more real world quality and also makes the horror element of the film work more is that they are unknown we don't know where they've come from we don't know really what they are and the characters are asking the same questions that we as an audience member are asking we don't need the answers for that though because at no point in this film do i question these creatures existence i just get that they are there they yeah. are something that we haven't seen before and they are terrorizing these people. And the unknown thing about them makes them scarier as well because yeah. it makes you think... For me, I watched a lot of horror films growing up. And I think I've mentioned on a previous episode of this podcast that the film that scared me the most that I took away with was actually Tremors. And it's because of that feeling that I used to get when I would be in the middle of a field somewhere and then suddenly the image of a tremor, like the, of the graboid would pop into my mind and I feel like... I am exposed here. And just like in that film that they've come out of nowhere and terrorized these people, what's stopping them from coming out of nowhere and terrorizing me in the middle of this field right now? And that's what makes it scary for me, that fact that you don't know what they are. And it made me laugh on the documentary because it kind of almost pointed the finger at people that make prequels and things like that because they were like, (laughs) right, there's only four possibilities of where these things have come from. So you've got radiation, genetic experiment, outer space, or they've always been here, and none of them are particularly interesting. Yeah, take one and run with it. Yeah, because obviously they discuss it in the film as like all those possibilities, but obviously yeah. it's just a realistic conversation about what you would be thinking at that time. Of course, yeah. And that's almost every prequel. Uh, it's not that interesting. <laughs> it is. 
But one thing that I just want to say about Ron Underwood as well is, I know Tremors came out in 1990, but a, uh, a short 10 or 12 years later, he brought to our screens the amazing adventures of Pluto Nash. Oh. And he won a Razzie. He got, oh, no, so he got man. a Razzie nomination for that film for Worst Director. I think that is definitely a film that should be on our list. Oh, wow. What a, what a fall from grace. Have you seen it? I've only ever seen like other people. T- I've only ever like listened or watched other people talk about it. Yeah. It's one of those films that's, that's regularly talked about, but very little seen, I think. I think most people's experiences with Pluto Nash have been from people just talking about Pluto Nash yeah. rather than actually watching it. I've not seen it all the way through. I've seen enough of it to know what a horror show it really is. Yeah. And I know it's been on our list as well for some time. I think we've got it on our list, but yeah. I, I think it's one that we should definitely push to the front of that list uh, if we do fancy doing a very bad film at some point. And it's another film that I get that's like, it's a labor of love for someone and it's full of like imagination done in the worst type of way. <laughs> yeah. But the one that he did prior to that as well is actually, I, I don't I don't mind this film. It's one of the good, Disney 90s films, but Mighty Joe Young. I actually (laughs) quite like that film. I saw it in the 90s when it came out, and I thought it was very well done, and I thought that the uh, gorilla stuff was great. Can't remember what it was about. Just that it was about a gorilla, a giant gorilla. (laughs) And that was actually the film that stopped uh, Peter Jackson from making King Kong in the 90s, prior to his uh, Lord of the Rings days. Back when he, I think he said that when he was, uh, he had a script then, they were getting ready to cast and start pre-production and stuff like that. But it was more of an Indiana Jones film. I think maybe that film would have been the better one. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Okay, do you have anything further to add in regards to Tremors? Uh, I've just got one note, which is about the music, actually. Because that's kind of an interesting story. So the, the credited composer on the film is Ernest Troost. But he's only actually responsible for about half of the score. So basically all the score, which is the goofy country and western music his his music so like the rock jumping scene for example yeah yeah is a very country and western and whenever the score goes into more serious orchestral territory that is someone else's work entirely so this is a case of a score being thrown out but not all of it yeah so yeah apparently they deemed Ernest true score to be just too goofy and lacking punch in the moments where it should have been bit more sort of horrific so they brought in a composer called robert folk to rescore about half an hour of the film yeah but his work remains uh, uncredited and i don't know why oh that's that is a shame because i can hear the moments that he's rescored in my mind already i can already mm. differentiate them and i actually probably agree like i can hear the goofiness to the folky and country parts of the film as well like as i mentioned the bit where they're jumping over the rocks but it works for the film as well because it gives it that kind of country cowboy flavor as well that the film needs but the music does noticeably change when we're dealing with the graboids as well yeah and it works for the film because it's essentially two separate elements you have something scoring the graboids and the action involving the graboids and you have something else for like that gives it a flavor of character for these people but it's a shame that he's gone uncredited for that yeah it's a bit like the uh i mean i don't know why i'm using this comparison but it's a bit like the handsomer james newton howard dark knight score yeah it it is yeah (laughs) definitely it's weird how james newton howard goes vastly uncredited and underappreciated for his work on uh the Batman Begins and The Dark Knight, because Dark Knight Rises is it's a fine score, but it's completely lacking any sense of nuance that the other two scores do I th- have. I think it, it lacks that variety 
that you get yeah. from the collaboration because Dark Knight Rises is a, is a very Hans Zimmer-y score and typical of the score that he was doing at that time because I don't like to pigeonhole yeah. Hans Zimmer too much because yeah he is I think people have a perception of him that he just does one kind of thing but no he's, he's quite versatile and we, we've mentioned on this podcast before if you compare something like Hannibal which is very lyrical and poetic to something like The Dark Knight yeah. Rises which is a bit more like moving more into creating sound design as well I mean this is completely on a tangent but I think one that I think it's because we ended up re-watching it for that Disney show we did the other week. The original score, not the weird, fucked up, horrible motion capture one, but the, the original score of The Lion King is, uh, you, know, you know, it's a very melodic score. Like, there's a lot of themes in there yeah. that you can hum that have got nothing to do with the songs. Mm-hmm. So that's the definitely the more sort of lyrical, melodic side of Hans Zimmer that I don't think people really know about these days. Like you say, I don't like to pigeonhole him, but I do feel like certain types of filmmaker want him to recreate a certain type of sound that he has become famous for but that's not just all he can do yeah yeah anyway it's like that (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) so yeah so i'm just going to move over to these stats and facts in regards to film. actually one last thing that i did want to say was this film has more denim in it than a levi's store i did leave that as a note yeah it's basically a a levi's slash marlboro advert isn't it (laughs) (laughs) It really is. Um, So yes, moving over to the stats and facts now. I have some information in regards to the film. The budget of the film was $10 million. Again, 1989. I would say that, weirdly enough, we're just on the cusp of the $100 million movie. Mm. So it still frames this as being a lower-budgeted film, but it's still enough money to really achieve what they wanted with this. Yeah, it's like mid-to-low-budget, isn't it, at this time? Exactly, yeah. But, however, it was something of a bomb financially. It made $16.7 million domestically. It wasn't a massive failure or anything like that. It's clearly made more than its budget, but it's not made that double amount or triple amount that they really need to start turning over a profit. Yeah. I think it's become more profitable in the years since because of the quality of the film and how it's played overseas. But they certainly expected it to do more on release, and it did actually open at number five. Uh, on its first weekend of release and it's so it's an early january movie january 1990 to go over some of the films that were released at that time um in the top 10 we had and this is uh going from number one and counting them down born on the 4th of july tango and cash <laughs> uh the war of the roses internal affairs and then tremors is in at number five and then you had always steel magnolias the little mermaid and driving miss daisy it's not even the best weekend, really, for films, to be honest. Born yeah. on the 4th of July is very good. Oh, actually, I think a lot actually, of those think, are um, Thanksgiving and Christmas movies that have just holed over to the new year. Especially, like, I know Little Mermaids was released in the November. So that's actually yeah. done really, I mean, it did really well at the time. So uh, it's obviously just stayed in that top five or top ten. And actually, just below Driving Miss Daisy, I believe it was Back to the Future Part 2. Mm. But moving over to the critical reception to the film, this is where things get a lot better for the film. It has a Rotten Tomatoes score of 88% with a 7.24 average rating. And the consensus for the film is that it Tremors is an affectionate throwback to 1950s creature features and it reinvigorates its genre tropes with a finely balanced combination of horror and humour. I did pick out the Empire Review once more as our critic's choice and what Kim Newman for Empire Magazine does say in regards to the film that 
it's entertaining and unselfconscious enough to stand the test of time, even if the puppetry doesn't. Unfortunately, it led to three sequels, which simply aren't as much fun. And he gave it four out of five. And I actually feel like he's he's marked it down for its legacy and for <laughs> effects work that I actually think is very good. Yeah, yeah. But going over to the audience reaction now as well, it has a somewhat lower audience reaction score on Rotten Tomatoes, which mm. I was quite surprised by. It's got 75%. Yeah, yeah. It's got it's still got a very high average rating of 3.81 out of 5. But 75% I thought was very low for this film, but the IMDb score is 7.1 out of 10. As, as mentioned, I, I don't think... Like, the ambitions for this film aren't to make art, not to make high art or anything no, no. like that. It's to make an enjoyable popcorn movie a very well-made creature feature and they succeed in that magnificently for me i can't i literally can't fault this film for what they're trying to make this is exactly the film that they wanted to make and i do feel like as with edgar wright has said that it is very close to perfection (laughs) that is not a pun (laughs) but uh yeah i do feel like it very much is there isn't anything about this film that doesn't work in the intended way for me and yeah, I, I actually think that that's probably undercut it for what this film does achieve. But yeah, what, how, what do you think, Andy? What are your final thoughts towards uh, Tremors? Yeah, I would say that audience opinion is quite lower than I was expecting it to be. Because yeah, when I went on IMDb the other, uh, earlier, it was like, oh, I expected it to be in the sort of eights, really, rather than the yeah. sevens. I'm not quite sure what that is. I'm not. Is it the legacy of the sequels that's damaged it slightly? I'm not. I'm not sure. It could be for me. That could be my only thought that because the sequels have become progressively worse. The second one is, like I say, it's not bad. Apparently what happened with the second one, though, is that Kevin Bacon at one point had promised that he was going to be involved and at the last minute made the decision that he was going to make, I don't know, something like sleepers instead. And that caused the studio to half the budget and they completely retooled it from a film that was going to be released at the cinemas to something that was then going to be released direct to dvd and that caused them to completely rethink how they were going to do that film at the very last minute yeah and so i can understand why that is the way it is why it ha- does have a tv movie-ish quality at times even though it is for the period that, w- that it was released a higher budgeted tv movie and it's still quite enjoyable for what it does and i think that yeah perhaps that's got to be the answer that maybe it's that legacy that has dulled it and after the promise as well because the the trailer for that pilot episode for the Kevin Bacon film as well did so well with people. They really responded to it quite highly. I think as well the disappointment of that perhaps has played into it somewhat. Because I do think maybe that's why we didn't get that series. Maybe the that's why the studio bolted at the um, at the budget at the last minute because they were still making these direct-to-DVD movies at the same time because of the rights have essentially been split up now. I was just thinking, I did mention The Land Before Time uh, earlier, but it does have (laughs) vibes of that because that is also a film that I think has gone down in people's viewpoint because of the endless stream of poor sequels. Yeah. You know, the box set is like fucking like 12 films or something now. (laughs) Really? Something like that. It's really stupid how many films there are. Uh, It's become indistinguishable from the other films that followed the main I mean, mean, it's a bit like Tremors now. There's so many films that they've stopped numbering them. Uh, yes, Tremors, yeah. they stopped numbering them after like Tremors 4 or 5 or something and they just got yeah. the subtitle now So, uh, and the same thing happened with Land Before Time because I think they got to like Land Before Time 7 and then they stopped numbering them <laughs> so uh, yeah I, I, that, that's the only thing I can think of because like when we watched it in the Starburst Festival it had such a great reaction with people mm. and you know when they were talking about the preview that they had 
you know, it's definitely a crowd pleaser. Uh, I mean, they, you know, they had to reshoot the whole ending to yeah. get um, Val and Rhonda to kiss because the audience was like, kisser, kisser, like in the audience. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they reshot the whole bloody ending <laughs> because of the audience reaction. I didn't know that. Uh, in, in a positive way, yeah. It's, it's weird that I think that the tinkering in post is actually... I wouldn't say it saved this film because I don't think it needed saving or anything like that. But it's I, I think it's benefited the film. Like there's a couple of ideas that they've done in post. None of them that involve the heavy work in regards to the creatures or the main bulk of the film, but more so just like tweaks along the way mm. that they've uh, that they've arrived to in in post production that have actually really benefited the film for me. I would say. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so I think that's all that we have to say about Tremors this week. It's definitely a film that I would recommend. Uh, to be honest, we've talked about it now for the last. Uh, you know 80 or 90 minutes and i can't think of a bad thing that i've actually said about the film (laughs) it's it's certainly one that i'd recommend it's even one if you've got like i would say like nine to ten year olds that are just starting to get involved in horror films and are looking for something that's just going to give them that little extra scare tremors is a film that definitely uh, meets that requirement Uh, it might scare them for a little bit longer as well then yeah yeah you know then you might anticipate but um yeah, so for next week, we're actually going to be swapping monsters. Uh, we've talked about actually analog filmmaking. We're going to be moving <laughs> very much into the realm of digital filmmaking, yeah. whilst also staying in the 90s as we review <laughs> The Lawnmower Man. Yeah. Which, um, to be honest, I haven't seen since I was a kid. <laughs> I am ready for this film to imprint on me again. I will say theatrical or director's cut. Which one are we going for? We I've made got the director's yet? cut, but I might watch the theatrical as well. Yeah. At least the first half of it anyway, just to see what I the was differences gonna say, are. I, I think I've seen the, only seen the theatrical cut, so I might watch the director's cut as well. I, I have more of a memory of the theatrical cut, so it's going to be interesting to see what the difference is. Yeah. yeah. Nonetheless, I think we would still get the, uh, the full Lawn Mower Man experience. Yeah. <laughs> Whatever that is. Oh my gosh. Uh, But until then, it's a bye from myself. And it's bye from my ass end. And all of us here at the Creepcast. (laughs) Thank thank you for listening. (laughs) Please, please come back for the next episode. (laughs) Please come back. Oh, stop it. (laughs) It's the heat. The heat has done this to us. Thank you for listening. You've